I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Contentious Politics, a mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another podcast from Chatham House. It's great to have you with us. I hope you've been enjoying the series of episodes that we've been putting out over the last couple of weeks on Ukraine. I think Ned Sedgwick and the team are doing a really, really fascinating job there bringing to light some of the related issues, the sort of broader issues and the implications of the crisis. We'll be back very soon with a standard undercurrents episode. But this week, I just wanted to share a really, really fascinating new series of interviews that have been produced by the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, led by their director, Lina Khatib. And the idea behind this series is really to dig into the political dynamics across the Arab world and, and the Middle East region more broadly in the wake of the Arab Spring, which obviously emerged in 2010 and 2011, and which spread across the region and has had wide-ranging implications ever since. So across the next four episodes, you're going to hear Lena in conversation with a number of leading experts in this space, covering a whole host of different political contexts. And in this first episode, you're going to hear from James Zogby, the founder and president of the Arab American Institute. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Lina Khatib. I'm the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. And it's a delight today to be having a conversation with Dr. James Zogby, who needs no introduction, but for those who uh, don't know him, he co-founded the Arab American Institute in Washington, D.C., and is its president uh, until now. The institute was founded in 1985, and it serves as the political and policy research arm of the Arab American community. Dr. Zogby is also director of Zogby Research Services, which is a pioneer in doing uh, polls and surveys all across the Middle East. And he's the author of a number of books. Uh, A lot of people, I'm sure, already know them, but the latest one is called The Tumultuous Decade, which looks at uh, Arab, Turkish, and Iranian public opinion over a decade spanning uh, 2010 till 2019, looking at the key political and social transformations taking place across the region and building on the findings of uh, Zogby Research Services. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lena. Actually, I was at Chatham House only once, and the last time I was there was with another book called Arab Voices, which covered the first 10 years of this century. So it's uh, it's nice to be back at least virtually uh, to talk about the next decade. Yes, absolutely. And speaking of Arab voices, uh, one of the things that we want to uh, talk about today is the transformations in the Arab world over the last decade, but also reflecting on what happened before, because obviously what happened in the last decade did not uh, come out of nowhere. And that's one of the things I'd love for you to weigh in on. The idea that the Arab Spring, uh, you know, sprang out of nowhere is unfortunately something that uh, we still hear 
So I'd love your take on that. And uh, also, obviously, through your vast uh, experience in polling, it'll be very interesting to see what has what has changed over the past decade um, as well. But also looking into the future, because this podcast is part of a, uh, a series we're doing uh, on contentious politics uh, in the Middle East, which looks back at the past decade, but also into the future. So if we are to say uh, your latest book versus Arab Voices, what would you say struck you as something that has continued? And what would you say was something that struck you as a rather significant departure? Let me begin at the beginning of the millennium. There was a false stability, but there was a sense of stability across the region. The Cold War ended. The Bush administration had convened, or the uh, George Herbert Walker Bush had convened a Madrid peace conference. The Clinton administration inherited that structure and moved forward uh, in the Middle East with a, a policy that pretty much held in place what they had inherited. Uh, they inherited the rounds of Madrid, the sort of the stability in the Gulf that was created by containing both Iran and Iraq. Uh, and they can they maintained the alliances we had with Gulf states, with North Africa states. And the situation seemed, as we turned into the Bush administration, to be fairly stable. It was, a, some would say, a false stability, but it was in place. And then came 9-11, and with that, the Bush administration acting with both hubris and a sense of, of complete recklessness engaged in both Afghanistan and Iraq without any sense of what the consequences would be. Uh, I was a part of a Council on Foreign Relations working group uh, after 9-11, and I can remember uh, many of those neoconservative voices like Gingrich and Jim Woolsey and Fouad Ajami and other words arguing early on that Iraq was critical, that we had to display American power uh, so as to secure uh, our role, America's role, as the stabilizing force in the world into the next century. We had to defeat terrorism, show who was the, the, the boss in town, and move forward with that in, in mind. It turned out exactly the opposite. Uh, America became weaker, less respected, uh, our military was depleted. Uh, a ragtag army of uh, insurgents uh, held us uh, at bay for years. Instead of becoming the number one power in the world, we became uh, part of a, a multipolar world. I mean, we unleashed regional powers like Iran. Iran had been contained. Iran now became uh, a major player in Iraq, but also emboldened to expand uh, throughout the region. Uh, Turkey uh, became emboldened. Uh, everyone sought to protect their own interests because America could no longer do it. So I think if I looked at anything that changed over the 20 years in this century, it's that the role of America uh, went into decline. And as it went into decline, other powers emerged who played roles competing with one another or teaming up with one another against others. So that if you look at all of the regional conflicts that have unfolded, whether it is in the in the immediate Gulf region or in Syria or in Yemen or in uh, Libya, etc., what you have are a, a series, a, a number of players, be it Turkey, Iran, Israel, Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia, in differing combinations with one another, 
you know, competing for regional influence, but also to protect their own uh, their own interests. Uh, and because the stability has been shattered, and there there is not only no sheriff in town, but it's like the the Wild West with everyone squared off against each other. I think that's the biggest change is not the Arab countries themselves, but all of the other players in the region now having uh, competing roles in, in the region. And you're not just uh, an observer and an analyst uh, and a researcher. You also were appointed in uh, 2013 by uh, President Obama at the time uh, to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. And you were uh, pretty much involved in an advisory capacity, not just uh, with the Obama administration, but also some of the uh, presidential campaigns for uh, others, uh, from Gore to Sanders. So talk us through what you saw and and what you conclude from having had this uh, close uh, engagement with the administration and, and also U.S. politics. Well, I, I think the first thing that's so disheartening is the extent to which they, successive administrations have locked out external experts. They'll listen, uh, but they won't hear. Uh, and so everyone seems to know, they think they know more than they do and end up sort of playing out various versions of a conventional wisdom of how to deal with, how to deal with things. There's very little place for new thought. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the, the problem is compounded by the hyper-partisanship that exists in Washington, which has made the governance difficult uh, and has made us somewhat dysfunctional as a, um, as a democracy these days. It, it's not as if a president has the ability to, uh, to act without consideration for whether or not it will destroy his party's chances in, in an election or whether or not even something that in previous decades would have been a source of national unity, defending Ukraine, for example, today instead becomes a source of how are the Republicans going to play this against us? Uh, Israel doing some outrageous thing in the West Bank. In previous years, a president might have been able to say that will not stand Today, it becomes an electoral issue against the president. Uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan is something both parties had agreed to. When you withdraw, it becomes a partisan issue. So that the considerations don't become what's in the interests of the, the country or what's in the interests of stability or what's in the interest of, of peace and security. It becomes what's going to help me win or not win, cause me to lose in November. And that has made governance very difficult. It's made foreign policy very difficult. I wrote a piece recently about Biden's promises to Palestinians and how the platform was, I've been negotiating party platforms now for well over 35 years and you know been on the losing side most times, but fought and won some little victories. This year we thought we, we had a platform that we knew was insufficient, but it was so much better than anything we'd ever seen in terms of promises made to Palestinians that we were willing to feel good about it. What happened? Biden gets elected, then Netanyahu is defeated, and the Biden administration has had two calculations that they make. One is, if we do this, if we fulfill the pledge to the Palestinians on opening the consulate in in Jerusalem, or if we fulfill the 
the promise to the Palestinians about opening the office in Washington, or if we fulfill the promise to the Palestinians about stopping Israeli settlements, it'll have one of two effects. It'll either cause Netanyahu to come back and it'll weaken Bennett, or it will cause the Republicans to uh, to use it as an electoral issue against them in November. So the result is, is that the Biden administration has done virtually nothing on Israel-Palestine. And that's been the case uh, all the way around. You know, right now they're looking at Ukraine, which is a huge issue about whether or not America has the ability to defend a country that's been allied with us. Uh, and yet they, they stand by making tough sounds. But I think Putin knows that Biden will not risk U.S. military involvement and sanctions are something that he can probably withstand because, frankly, at the end of the day, every other country in the region is going to be looking at its own interests versus uh, the interests of Ukraine. And so Ukraine becomes rather vulnerable. And I'm sure Taiwan is sitting by saying, oh, my God, that's, that's us next. I, I think we're in a very strange world right now where uh, America had been the winner of the the Cold War. It emerged as a soul, uh, the sole superpower. It's now it coexisting with other powers that are competing for interests, and and it's now paralyzed by its own internal dysfunctions. And so the result is is that we're in a you know we're in a new situation where I don't know how we come out of it easily. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you make a very important link between basically domestic politics in the United States and foreign policy. But I couldn't help but uh, think when you were talking about Ukraine, whether in some ways the Syrian conflict also maybe indirectly paved the way for this, or maybe not necessarily paved the way, but whether it's another example of United States uh, decisions uh, having repercussions that uh, now have played in Russia's favor. Sure. Uh, look, I mean, Libya played a role in it too. I mean, uh, Obama made the claim we were just defending Benghazi. There was a stopping a massacre. Uh, that was not the case at all. It turned out to be a, a, a an assault on Libya, which granted, I mean, Gaddafi was a, not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination, but we entered into a conflict that rid the country of Gaddafi, unleashed the kind of tribal uh, conflict that we end up with that is just horrific for Libya and for the region. And Russia lost a port and an access to the Mediterranean that was critical. I believe that uh, one of the major reasons why Russia saw Syria as an important place to to invest in was because it had, you know, it had lost its place in Libya. And so all of these become interconnected. And one of the things I argued in the beginning of the Biden administration was that they needed to think bigger than piecemeal foreign policy and I read, wrote a piece in the Nation uh, that it was time for Biden to think big and to understand that all of the conflicts in the Middle East were connected by these very same players competing with each other in different combinations in different countries. And so there needed to be the construction of an OSCE in the Middle East, a, a regional security framework that might not give everybody what they wanted, but would give them what they needed uh, in order to uh, to create space for change to take place uh, within each country, like the way Europe uh, was able to to have a period of security and stability lasting over uh, several decades uh, that ultimately paved the way for the, the democracy movements in the East 
to transform the the situation. I mean, continuing this standoff with Iran that no one can win. Um, Iran certainly isn't winning. Uh, the Gulf states are 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 not interested in in hostilities. That gives Iran space to continue to provoke and and meddle. Israel makes noises about bombing uh, Iran or wanting conflict with Iran, wanting to push the U.S. into conflict. That'd be the worst thing for the Gulf Arab states uh, if if that were to happen. Uh, the UAE is dependent upon uh, stability and dependent upon relations with Iran. I mean, look, Iran is a, a they're bastards in terms of the work that they're doing, the, the meddling role that they're playing and the way that they're continuing to push the envelope. But there are 400,000 Iranians living in Dubai and, and, and the rest of the UAE, and the trade relations between the countries have always been close. The last thing on earth UAE needs is a, a war with Iran right across the water that will destabilize the Gulf for a long time to come. So the idea of a regional security framework is, is absolutely critical. An, a, a P5 plus one, not to deal with the bomb that Iran doesn't have, but a P5 plus one to deal with the security relationships and the security framework that we need is, I think, the, w the way to move forward, is to use all of the diplomatic pressure that we have available to us to create a security framework that will serve everyone's interests ultimately in the, in the region. But that does not find a receptive ear in, in Washington because people don't think big here. They think today, tomorrow, and next week. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, policy, uh, unfortunately, has been quite short-sighted. But sadly, this is, this is not just something that the Biden administration can be accused of. We also saw similar things, even as far back as the days of Obama, when he would promise certain things or say certain things that appeared to be quite immediate, but even those were not realized, like the famous red line statement of 2013. So in your opinion polling, as all this is playing out, and it's very important to have this uh, picture that you've just painted in our, in our minds as we think about how people in the region have seen all this. So from the public opinion polling that you have done, how have people been regarding these developments, especially the role of the U.S.? There still is a need for the U.S. It's, it's felt that is, it, it is an essential partner in many countries. Uh, its role has been diminished, no doubt, uh, and in some countries eclipsed. Interesting polling that we've done says that today, if, they, if Arab countries look at the U.S. or China, they say the U.S. is 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 a more important partner, but if we ask them ten years or twenty years down the road, who do you think will be the more essential partner? They say China. There's a lack of confidence. There's a, a, an immediate need, but a lack of confidence in the future role of the United States. They see it uh, diminishing, and they don't know what the U.S. does to to win that back. Is as early as the Dubai ports uproar in the U.S., we'd asked questions about whether business leaders in the region were looking east or west for the future. And, and early on, they were telling us they were looking east, not west. What still remains the U.S.'s trump card, and I, I mean that with a small t, is soft power. The U.S. still remains a desired location for education, for 
import of products. I mean, what, as from the earliest time when we were doing this polling and asking questions like this, people hated our policy, hated the way we treated them, but loved our products, our culture, our values, and our people, which I think is great. I mean, in the sense that I'd rather have them love our people than hate our people. And I completely understanding of why they hate our policies. I mean, look, we project values, but we don't treat people according to our values. And so they, you know, I, I remember one time doing a, after we do the polling, sometimes we do some interviews just to get anecdotal material. And one guy said, yes, I love America, but America doesn't love me. I guess I feel like a jilted <laughs> lover. And I think that that's, that is, is a widespread sense. Although today I think people would say, I love America, but... I understand it's it's weak and its weaknesses, and I understand that it's uh, uh, it's not somebody I can rely on. Uh, but I still like your people, and I like your products, and I like to watch your television shows. That kind of thing. I mean, I, I think that there is this chipping away at the sense of America being the 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 country that will lead the world or continue to play a leadership role in the next generation. I, and I I don't think we've done anything to help turn that that around. Yeah, I mean, I... I and and uh, Lena, just action. one thing about, about yeah. Obama. I mean, I think that as... And I was a huge fan. I mean, I worked on his campaign, went to 11 states campaigning for him. I, I remember uh, speaking uh, at the American University of Cairo. I gave a commencement address uh, before he was elected, saying that he would be elected. And I, I looked to the day when an African-American got off the plane, uh, Air Force One landing in an Arab country and how, how profoundly meaningful that would be. And I think that was all true. It was all true. But he had a sense of the power of words, but not a commitment to follow through on policy. And so it's so many times in, in his career, he would give the great speech, but nothing happened after the great speech, uh, whether it was on race or whether it was on gun violence or whether it was on the Middle East. And, and so he gave the, the Cairo speech, which I had differences of opinion. We, I mean, when we, when we were given the draft and we, we had a chance to comment on it, I, I had issues with it. But nevertheless, it remained a roadmap in many ways for the errors we'd made and how we had to move forward. But none of that happened. And, and part of it, of course, was the hyper-partisanship of Washington. I mean, he was stymied in many ways, but he also had his own failures and, and his, his refusal or inability of his advisors to see the changes unfolding in the region and how he had to adapt American policy to, to, to deal with them. In the end, he gives an interview in the Atlantic at the end of his administration with Jeffrey Goldberg in which he blames the Arabs for not doing enough to bring about the change that he had promised. And when I said something to him about it, he said, oh, their expectations were too high. And I said, Mr. President, you created the expectations. They didn't. You're the one who said that you would change Washington, change America, and change the world. And I don't think he understood that, that the power of his words could not change reality by itself it had to be a roadmap that he would then follow through on to help make those changes. But at the end of the day, I mean, Obama was promise but not delivery. And I think that that created its own kind of, of, of damage uh, in, in the region. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I always say is inaction is not neutrality. So if the U.S. decides to act or doesn't, 
both have consequences uh, in the region. So him just saying things without uh, following through with action had a profound uh, impact in the region. But it's interesting what you cite about him blaming the Arabs, because this sadly is a narrative that continues until today. Unfortunately, I get asked, why did the Arab Spring fail? And can there ever be democracy in the region? And These kinds of assumptions uh, are very frustrating because they kind of imply that there is something inherently different about about this region where people are resistant to reform. Um, However, the public opinion polling that you've done paints a different picture about what, what people want. So perhaps... Maybe you can talk about some of the findings in that regard. What what do the people say they want and what do they criticize in terms of the uh, politics and regimes in their own countries? When we poll over the, over the last more than two decades now and ask people what they want, largely it comes out they want jobs and a, a, a better economic future. They want uh, education opportunities improved so that their kids can fit in in the modern world, and they want health care. I mean, I say all the time that, you know, the myth in the West is is that uh, Arabs wake up in the morning hating America, go to bed at night hating Israel, and spend the day in between listening to preachers or television networks that are inflaming their passion and their anger. What we find in the polling is that Arabs wake up in the morning thinking about their kids and worried about you know whether they're going to find work and and be safe and 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 secure. They go to bed at night worried about their parents and whether their parents are going to be able to have a, a a decent old age. And during the day, they end up they go to work, they make money to survive when they have a job. And when they watch television, they largely watch movies, reality shows, drama, they don't spend time sitting around hating uh, the West and, and, and Israel. I think that what, what the polling says to me is that Arabs are like people everywhere in the world. They want the basic needs of their lives cared for, and they want government that is able to provide them. Uh, and they judge their governments badly because their governments can't provide them, but they also look at the West uh, and those who've meddled in their region as having inhibited this kind of responsive and responsible governance that has provided for their for their needs. And I, I think that that is something that, that we need to be a- accountable for. I mean, we, we know about the role that, for example, Britain and France played in, in its colonies uh, in, in Africa and in uh, Asia. But we know of the way that uh, the U.S. Uh, has inhibited natural development in Latin America uh, and fostered uh, regimes that were served American economic interests. We haven't paid attention to the same way that Britain, France, the US and others uh, inhibited natural development and progress. I mean, Egypt had a a gross domestic product that was greater than Italy and and Spain in the mid 1800s. What happened that transformed Egypt into a dependency? What happened to transform the Arab East into uh, failed states or or military regimes? We know what happened. There was cruel and crude intervention that dismembered, dislocated, and disabled good governance in in, in those regions. So there's a certain accountability here (laughs) 
Uh, and what I get a, a kick out of is that look at the priorities of governance in the West, of governments in the West. I mean, I looked at AID, USAID, and I said, you're spending so much time projecting on Arabs what they don't want and what you have no right to offer, i.e. democracy training programs. I mean, I mean, after Oslo, USAID had a program that was to teach Palestinians entrepreneurialism. I, I, I was flabbergasted. I said, you don't need to teach Palestinians how to do business. Give them two nickels and they'll do a business. They need freedom. They need economic opportunity created for them to start their own businesses. And if you're gonna give them any money, have it be a loan to start businesses and grow their economy and the freedom in which to do it. Uh, they didn't get it then and they still don't. They still don't get it. I, th the only time it was gotten, uh, understood, was Obama's second anniversary of Cairo speech. When I, I was there and it was at the State Department, the headlines of that speech were, he talked about the 1967 borders for Israel, that Israel needed to withdraw to the 67 borders. For me, the most important part of the speech was the first half when he talked about the Arab Spring and he said, we didn't start it, we can't direct it, and we can't determine its outcome. What we can and must do is provide the building blocks for democratic growth in the region, which is we need to help build a secure middle class uh, by promoting economic investment that can create jobs, by improving education opportunities so that kids learn the skills to compete in the modern world, and by changing the healthcare environment so that people have healthy lives. We need to invest in them so they can grow their economy. We don't need to teach them how to be Democrats. Democracy will emerge and evolve if we help provide the building blocks. I mean, we give money a billion plus to Egypt for their military. What if we invested it in uh, an economic development program that was like an enterprise fund, like the ones we have in, in the Africa Development Bank, where we helped Egypt build a middle class, helped Egypt build an economy of secure, independent entrepreneurs who could grow <laughs> and create jobs. We don't think that way. And, and so blaming the Arabs for our failure is not the, the, the way to move You've forward. You've painted a bleak um, picture. And uh, the picture obviously has underlined that definitely the concerns that were raised during the Arab Spring regarding uh, jobs, uh, economic justice, etc., have been ongoing. The United States, through its foreign policy, one way or another, has exacerbated the situation. As you said, investment in the wrong programming, amongst other issues. Where do you see things heading uh, from now on? I mean, you've been outspoken in terms of trying to tell the current administration in the U.S. what they should be thinking about and what they should be doing. Do we see any any kind of way that is positive or do we just uh, have to resign ourselves to venting? <laughs> well, I, I do my share of venting and I do my share of challenging. And uh, to some extent, uh, I view this work a little like, like Sisyphus. Um, I mean, I've, I'm rolling that damn stone up the hill and I know it's going to fall back down, but I'm going to just keep going after it. And I kind of think that that's the way ultimately progress occurs. It's never, it's never that the stone doesn't roll back down. It's that you get stronger uh, and more adept at dealing with the challenges as you go forward. So no, I don't see any 
uh, immediate change in in American policy. I don't see any immediate change in the 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 characters who are shaping American policy. I mean, to some extent, it's the it's the same cast of characters who are victims of a groupthink. Uh, they've been around for for decades, and they'll continue to be around. They and their acolytes will be around for a few more decades. It's the it's the acceptable framework of thought that has shaped in a distorted way our approaches to the region uh, ever since I've come to Washington. You, you'll present new ideas, and they'll say, "Oh, that's interesting," but we can't do that. Um, and and so it it doesn't ever get done. So I don't I don't see any any dramatic change, but I do think that that the germ of the Arab Spring continues to to grow under the under the surface. That that uh, we've seen the uprisings in uh, in in Egypt, and then more recently in in Iraq and in Lebanon and in Sudan and. And Algeria is still brewing, and Morocco hasn't uh, subsided. I mean, the, the, this, these aspirations for a better life, for your children's future to be more secure, those don't go away. Uh, and, and people have a sense, uh, I think, that if government can't, I will. And so people take rather creative approaches to, uh, including, including leaving the country, to finding a way to, to make their future better. Uh, I'm not hopeless, but I also don't want to be naive and say uh, in the next five years or the next 10 years, this or that will happen. I, I can't believe that that Egypt, despite the fact that the, the government will say all is well and we're fine. And when we polled in Egypt, when we polled in, in 2013, the Muslim Brotherhood favorable rating was in the 20s and the military was 94. And when we asked people, what do you think, what do you want to happen? They said they wanted national reconciliation and a national dialogue about how to move forward. They didn't want uh, their country Islamized by the Brotherhood. When we polled after the military took over uh, and deposed Morsi, and I, I, I've learned that you're not supposed to say that there was a coup because e Egyptians get crazy if you say coup, um, but it was. We, we polled in September and attitude toward the military was still fairly high, but lower. Uh, attitude of the Brotherhood had begun to climb up. And when we said, what do you think is the way forward? They said national reconciliation and, and dialogue toward a better future in which all the parties are involved. As we poll over the years and continue to move forward, today, today, the most recent time we polled this, the military's rating had dropped 40 to 50 percent, 40 to 50 points. It was down below 50, 50 percent favorable rating. The Brotherhood rating was as high as President Sisi's rating, uh, and people still want dialogue and reconciliation as the way to move forward. So th these things have come. Now, they will say, oh, no, that's not true. I mean, it was interesting. When I polled in Egypt before uh, the Marud, uh, and, and we found the Brotherhood rating so low and the military so high, I was on every Egyptian TV channel, uh, and I was interviewed by all the papers, and they were all, this is the best, this is great, thank you so much, you've done such a great poll. In the more recent polling, it's now, your model is skewed, you're, you're only talking to the wrong people, and they go on like that. It's like, if they agree with your numbers, you're great, if they disagree with your numbers, your polling is all wrong. I believe the polling was right. I believe that uh, Egyptian attitudes are masked by fear of, of speaking out. 
but I, I, and I think therefore that there is a simmering under the surface of, of attitudes that say, this isn't working, this has got to change. And the, the question is, Egypt is not an easy place to make that change. It's, uh, but I, I do believe that, that ultimately there will be that transformation in the country. I, you know, and, and this is, I'm sorry again to go on here, but it's a situation where I think that despite the fact that she was criticized for it, uh, Ann Patterson as U.S. ambassador to Egypt was, as you Brits say, spot on when she spoke to the, I think it was the Ibn Khaldun Center uh, before Tamarud, and she said, street demonstrations right now won't change the situation. You need to organize political parties and compete in the next election and win. And I think that was right. I mean, democracy doesn't come about from upheaval. It comes about from organized structural change that moves the situation forward. I, and I'm, I'm pleased that in Lebanon, for example, the despite the you know, the, the corrupt elites that govern with the Praetorian Guard of the of Hezbollah protecting the, 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 the status quo, that what the alternative parties have done is organize themselves to compete in the election. And they've set a, a modest goal of, you know, X number of seats that will tip the balance and keep the old regime from coming back. And it'll give them a voice in shaping the, the, the future of governance in the country. Uh, in Lebanon, when we poll today, two-thirds say they want fundamental change. The traditional parties only have the support of 20% uh, of the population. They want alternatives. They want something new. They don't want the old sectarian system. Will they get it in this election? I don't know, but I'm so pleased that those who represent the alternatives are forming political parties and competing in elections, uh, hopefully to win, because that's the way forward. Absolutely. And it's very important to point out these changes that you are talking about, because again, one of the excuses often used by Western policymakers is that the Arab world has not changed and, and things are pretty static and there's no point because it's rather hopeless. But what you're uh, saying is actually there are some significant changes happening on the ground if only people would pay attention and, and try to nurture uh, these uh, even small uh, windows of opportunity like what's happening in Lebanon right now. Well, we still managed to find a hopeful note uh, to end the conversation on. So thank you so much for the very frank discussion today. And I hope that next time we talk to you will be in person hopefully back at Chatham House one day. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lena. Well, that's it for this episode of Contentious Politics. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it. There are three more episodes in this mini-series that will be in your feed very shortly if they're not already. And I hope that you listen to those, tell your friends if you really enjoyed them. And if you're generally enjoying the podcast, please do like us, share us on social media, subscribe in whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this and leave us a review because it makes it far easier for other people to find us. If you'd like to find out more about the work of the Middle East and North Africa program, the best way to do that is to check out the Chatham House website, www.chathamhouse.org or to follow them on Twitter at ch underscore menap.
We'll be back very soon with another episode for you. But till then, thanks for joining us.